Good morning to you. Scholars tell us our text today is one of the most complex, controversial, and opaque in all of the Bible. One careful analyst has identified no less than 22 critical, crucial, debatable issues related to the meaning of this particular passage. And so it is a text that gets weaponized. It gets agendized by some who seek to advance their cause. It's a text that gets mocked by those who relegate the Bible to the status of irrelevant rhetoric. And yet, friends, today our text is God's Word to us. It has much to say, primarily not about haircuts and head coverings, but instead it affords us the opportunity to decipher how to divide the Word rightly. And so as you turn in the Word of the Lord to 1 Corinthians 11, and if you don't have a copy of Scripture, please use one of ours, the Blue Pew Bible in front of you, page 1218, will take you to 1 Corinthians 11. And as we turn in the Word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of that Word and ask Him to bless our time together in His text today. Would you pray with me? Father, we invite you as Lord of this church to speak to us as your people. We pray that uh, your word, that your spirit has inspired. Uh, no prophet spoke on his own, but he was moved by the Holy Spirit. And therefore, all scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Your word is a lamp unto our feet in a world of darkness. Some texts yield their gold through much mining. And so we pray today that we would prune away uh, that which is distracting and get and extract that which is uh, clear and true. We pray, Lord, that this text would not only teach us a bit about the applications and implications of this situation, but more than that, we pray that this text would teach us a bit about how to study the Word of God. That in passages that Winston Churchill would speak of the Russians being a riddle wrapped in an enigma, wrapped in a mystery, uh, that this past would yield its fruit, but we would also learn ways to better interpret all of the texts that we'll encounter. We pray this. It's a lofty goal for a single sermon, and so we, we entreat your Spirit, whom your Son promised would come to us and teach us all things. We invite that this morning in Jesus' precious name. Amen. The Word of God says in 1 Corinthians 11, we'll be reading uh, the first 16 verses. Now, uh, chapter 1, verse 11, really, uh, verse 1 is the end of our last unit. So we'll start in verse 2. He, he says, now I commend you. So he's, he's moving to another subject. He does that throughout the book. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. So he starts with a positive. And now he has to move to a negative, and that's where the rest of our passage will spend. He says, uh, now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you, verse 3, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God, and every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, and every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it's the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, but then she should cut her hair short. But since it is a disgrace for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head, 
For a man ought not cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman made from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the surprising bit here, angels. We weren't probably expecting that. Nevertheless, in the Lord, a woman is not independent of a man, nor a man of the woman, for a woman was made from man, and so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that a man wears long hair? It's a disgrace for him. But if a woman has long hair, it's her glory. For hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious... We have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Well, I'm sure it's sufficiently clear now we could stop. Uh, but in the event that your neighbor is confused, <clears throat> we'll try to provide some explanation. Paul begins by commending the Corinthian congregation. Commending them for what? Uh, for remembering Paul in everything, and here it is, and maintaining the traditions that he delivered unto them. Now, now, Paul is not saying traditions in the way we say traditions. He's not talking about the personal picadillos or, or, or tribal preferences of a group of people. Instead, Paul is using the word traditions in a very specific biblical way, in the 2 Thessalonians 2.15 way. You might want to write that next to your passage, 2 Thessalonians 2.15. In 2 Thessalonians 2.15, Paul writes, So then, brothers, strand, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. He's, he's talking about the things that are biblical that we must hold on to, that the apostles disseminated in the early church. This is what is happening in Romans 6.17. You might write that in your Bibles as well. Romans 6.17, Paul writes, Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. This is what Jude 3 is talking about when he writes, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered unto the saints. And so, friends, there are gospel truths that are timeless and critical to our witness. We are entrusted by God to keep them. We are entrusted by God to share them. And we are entrusted by God to contend for them, even if the culture does not like that part of Scripture. Now, there are also other matters that are not timeless, eternal gospel truths, but rather they are temporal applications and, and indeed cultural implications. And these items are going to shift because culture shifts. And so in our text today, the Apostle Paul speaks of both eternal gospel truths and also of specific cultural applications. 1 Corinthians 11 is speaking about the eternal gospel truth of headship as it relates to sonship and it pertains to worship. But then it goes on to speak of, of specific temporal applications that were unique to the Corinthians' situation at that location at that particular time in history. And those were the things dealing with hairdos and head coverings. All right. So our sermon today is entitled, Hairdos 
head coverings, and hermeneutics. And it's the third of those words that help us rightly divide the other two found in 1 Corinthians 11. You with me? All right. So you get to the word hermeneutics, and it doesn't sort of roll off the tongue. It seems to be a specialist word. It, it means this. It means the art and science of biblical interpretation. That's all it means. Hermeneutics is the art and the science of biblical interpretation. And it's kind of a weird word because it goes back etymologically to the Greek god Hermes. He's the dude that had the little wings on his feet. You remember him? You know? So he was the messenger god who would uh, bring messages between the gods. He would deliver them and sometimes he would interpret them. So when you talk about interpretation, you use the Greek word hermeneutics from Hermes, the wing-footed messenger. Today, I want us to learn, in the beginning of our time together, a couple of important hermeneutical fundamentals so we can distinguish between eternal biblical principles that we must understand, we must embrace, we must implement if we're going to be called biblical Christians versus, well, flexible cultural expressions that we don't have to emulate because across cultures and across the centuries, those expressions can take on entirely different, even opposite meanings. And so we must tread carefully in those areas. So, right about now, you're probably wondering the million-dollar question. The million-dollar question for the Christian is, which is which? What's an eternal gospel principle I have to hold on to, that I have to share, that I have to contend for the faith in? And, and what are things that are, that are cultural implications and applications that may not be appropriate in our situation? It's a great question, isn't it? And there's a great answer. And the first point of our sermon starts chipping away at that question. The first point in our sermon is, and it's in your outlines if you're following along, just unfold your bulletin. In regards to hermeneutics, the art and science of biblical interpretation, in regards to hermeneutics, we rightly divide the word when we consider, is this principle repeated in other scriptures? That is, we've read a text, we think it says this, is there any other text in all the Bible that tells us to do this? Particularly a text that's clearer, stronger, and the more it's repeated, the more obvious. So in regards to how we study the Bible, in regards to hermeneutics, we rightly divide the word when we consider, is this principle repeated in other scriptures? Let me give you a little mnemonic device. Friends, corroboration alerts us to aberration in our interpretations, lest we experience deviation from God's revelation. I'll say that to you again. Corroboration, looking around the Bible, is there another place that says this? Corroboration alerts us to aberrations, places we've gone wrong. In our interpretations, lest we experience deviation from God's revelation. In our text today, the Apostle Paul wants us all to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God the Father. And then... Paul proceeds to give a lengthy treatment of men and women regarding praying or prophesying with their head covered or uncovered. And now in all the Bible, which one of those topics comes up a bunch? And which one doesn't? 
You see, that's an important clue to me and you as to what is an eternal gospel principle and what is a cultural application in that particular situation. Well, when the Bible focuses in, in the very beginning of the Bible, and when, when the Bible focuses in on humanity in the universe's story, and it tells all of creation in chapter 1, then it focuses in on what it wants to highlight, which is humanity's creation in chapter 2. Uh, the Bible pays very specific attention to, to God's created, designed order. Uh, and the Bible goes out of its way to say that the man was made before the woman. Indeed, the word woman means of the man. Uh, it, it goes out of its way to say that when mankind was created, the man was created and he was alone. The Bible, uh, even in the Garden of Eden, where everything is wonderful and beautiful and good and perfect because it came from a good and perfect God, it was good, but it wasn't complete. There was something that was not good. What does the Bible say was not good in Genesis? It was not good for man to be alone. Spoken from a happily married man there. So two points to... And God said, I got a solution, I got a plan, I planned it all along, he brought Adam, he saw all the animals had another, person, another entity like itself, a mate, Adam realized, I don't have anything like myself, I'm unique here, I'm lonely here, and so God made, the Bible says, a helper suitable for him. Now, when the scripture is speaking about uh, who ought to be, to be teaching and preaching, uh, in the New Testament, it gets into an area our culture is not so excited about. But, but when it does, it speaks very clearly, and it's something that the, the church universally in every continent, there's been Christians through all through the Christian ages until about 1970, every Christian agreed. That's what it says. Here's what it says in probably the most clear text, which is 1 Timothy 2.13. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. They go to creation and not redemption as the basis for this requirement. That's very important. They go to creation, that God had a, a plan and not redemption. And then when the Bible wants to explain how the Christian home ought to function, it does that in a bunch of places, but a really clear place is Ephesians 5. The Bible says this, again, very clear text. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. That sounds a lot like our passage, doesn't it? His body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. That sounds familiar too, doesn't it? Yeah. And hold fast to his own wife and the two shall become one flesh. And he says this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And you can find other texts that speak on this. Now, let's compare that subject of headship as it relates to sonship, as it relates to worship. Let's compare that to hair links in the Bible. And let's think about all the times the Bible talks about, about hair links. Not angry fundamentalists who screamed, but, but the Bible talked about hair links. And you know what you're going to find? You're going to find there's a couple of times it talks about it in the Old Testament. Uh, you're going to find uh, that when the Nazarite vow happens, they make a vow not to cut their hair. And in Leviticus 21.5, it speaks of the priests, not all males and not women, but the priests, specifically the priests. It says in Leviticus 21.5, they shall not make bald patches on their heads, nor shave off the edges of their beards, nor make any cuts on their body. That's how the pagan priests look. They would, they, would, they would cut their hair a certain way and they, they would cut their bodies to get God's attention and they would make their beards all you know, funky, ZZ top looking and go, oh, that's a, that's a, that's a priest. You know, they do something to kind of stand out. In, in Ezekiel 44.20, 
It speaks again of the Levitical priests when it comes to the subject of haircutting. They shall not shave their beards, nor let their locks grow long. They shall surely trim the hair of their heads. Pretty much nowhere else in all the Bible are hair lengths and head coverings a pivotal point of pertinent discussion. In those few places where hair lengths are mentioned, never in the context of gender. It has to do with Nazarite vows or the priesthood. And so it is a telling feature of our scripture today that while there are numerous Bible passages throughout the Old and New Testament that, that speak of the doctrine of headship from different angles, that is, in God's economy, Christ is the head of the church and, and the husband is the head of the home, 1 Corinthians 11 is the only place where head coverings and hairdos as they pertain to gender are ever mentioned in the Bible. So in regards to hermeneutics and our first principle, when, when we consider that, is this repeated in other scriptures, what do you think that's telling us a little bit? Telling us something about what might be an eternal gospel principle because it's repeated in many places and, and what probably is only a cultural implication and application because we can't find it anywhere else in the Bible. So in our passage, headship is taught consistently and repeatedly throughout the scriptures. But, but, but hair lengths and, and head coverings, they in relation to gender, are not. And, and so that should give us pause on what we major on as a major and what we might be tempted to major on as a minor. Which brings us to our, our second hermeneutical principle. How do we interpret the Word of God anywhere? And this is a helpful principle. In regards to hermeneutics, point two, we rightly divide the Word when we remember that the more careful our observations of the text the more accurate our interpretations of the text. The more, say it again, in regards to hermeneutics, we rightly divide the word when we remember the more careful our observation of the text, well, that's going to lead to more accurate interpretations of the text. If, if you know something forward and backwards, if you can uh, uh, so marinate and saturate yourself in a scripture that you can repeat it letter perfect, you have a better chance of understanding its meaning. Now, you can also memorize mechanically, right? But, but in the Marine Corps, they made us uh, memorize a whole bunch of things. Um, and, and, you know, the, 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 the number of standing orders that are always true for every Marine. And the drill instructor would yell at you and you'd have to spit out, what's the fourth general order? Blah, 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 blah. You know, and it was, it was a participatory event. It was frowned on not to participate. Uh, and the idea was if we could make these guys regurgitated in a sleep-deprived state where their warm fuzzies are low because the drill instructor wasn't big on that, then these guys would internalize these things and they would do those things the seven general orders, or so forth. When we're trying to understand a biblical passage, the best way to do so is to so saturate ourselves in the passage that we begin to see all the details. And you need to constantly ask the text interrogatives. Those are question words. What is happening in this text? Why is this happening in the text? When is it happening? Is this before or after, during another portion of the text that it just came around it? How is it happening? That is, is this happening through the power of God or the power of the devil in some places? What's happening? Where is this happening? Have they left this area and now they're in a new area and is that significant? And to whom is this happening? Is this happening to all these people or just Christians or just the disciples or so on? You with me? Who, what, when, where, why? You're asking observations. Friends, biblical interpretation is a bit like detective work. If we were to walk into a room and the lights are off, and you observe in, in, a, in a dimly lit room, uh, you go to the third floor, and there is a, a, a body on the floor, 
you might think, okay, maybe there's a youth lock-in and somebody's here still sleeping, right? And if you come back three hours later and that body hasn't even moved a little, and you kind of look at it real hard in the dark room and you notice that the chest isn't rising and falling at all, you're going to say, I don't think he's sleeping. I think he's, I think he's dead, right? And so then you flick on the lights. You want some more observations. You need to really look at this because, you know, dead people in the, in the youth room is not normal. And, and so you look at this and you find, well... Um, there's a knife protruding from their torso. So that kind of makes you feel this is probably not natural causes. You know, you're, you're logical. You're doing the facts here. And, and then you notice that the, light, the knife is in their back. And so you interpret this. This is probably homicide uh, because the knife's angle makes it quite impossible to have been suicidal. Like, that's a really good trick to kill yourself and backwards with the knife, right? And so it doesn't quite take Hercule Perot to say it was Colonel Mustard in the, in the youth room with the knife that murdered Mr. Body. Because you just did basic what? Detective work. You observed until you yielded an interpretation based on good observations. The more questions you ask, the more details you discern. The more details you discern, the more likely your interpretation will be accurate. So a cursory reading of our text, when we just read this text once and fly over it, we might be wrongly led to think, well, I think this is a passage about head coverings and hairdos because he mentions it like a dozen times in 15 verses. That's got to be what it's about. But as you go back and read it and reread it and read it again and read it again, you're going to see that if you observe this more carefully, you're going to see the passage is really about, about the principle of headship and how it pertains to propriety and worship, and that head coverings and, hair cover, uh, and hairdos, th- those were just aspects retain, pertaining to the issue of headship and the issue of worship. And, and you see this because often the biblical writer will say, here's what I want to talk about. And when he finishes talking about it, he'll say, and to review, here's what I was talking about. And when you read our text today, it starts at verse 2, and he says, here's what I'm talking about. He says this, Now I commend you, because you remember in everything and maintain the traditions as I delivered them to you. So he gives them praise. You guys are trying to follow the Bible. And then he says, you know, but there's one thing you're not following when it comes to the Bible. It's verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So here's the issue. The issue isn't hairdos and head head coverings. The issue is headship and and, and propriety in in, in God's created order. And and the Christians there in Corinth, they're following a number of of God-given gospel traditions, and that's good. But they were not following this one. They failed to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And this misunderstanding of an eternal gospel principle was made manifest in a specific application to the Corinthian congregation in that particular time. And that's why the passage speaks of verse 4. Every man who prays or prophecies with his head uncovered dishonors his head. And every wife who prays or prophecies with her head uncovers dishonors her head. I don't know why, but every time I hear a preacher preach on this, they always focus on the women. Do you know who God gets mad at first? The man. Man's dishonoring the head. He is the first to be blamed in this story because of the principle of headship. But funny, preachers who are males usually forget that. So we're going to throw that out there and you can just let it permeate. So our passage is concerned clearly with that which brings dishonor or honor to God. About that which brings disgrace or glory 
in God's church. About that which is proper and improper in God's house among God's people in worship of the one true God. And the man or the woman mentioned, well, they can either honor or dishonor his or her head based on what is on his or her head. 1 Corinthians 11 speaks of why a man in that culture at that time ought not cover his head when praying or when prophesying in church, but why a lady should. It's the why of the timeless truth of this text, whereas the what. The what is just a temporal cultural application. The why is an eternal biblical principle. I want you to remember, if you're standing in first century Corinth, the gospel has brought tremendous liberties to slaves and free and women, and all these groups are getting to do things that they never really got to do. They were tidally tucked in a corner. Roman society was highly stratified, and you knew where you stood, and you weren't allowed to stand outside of your ring. But in God's church, in the first century, women were allowed to pray and prophecy in public in the church, but they needed to do it in a way that still showed deference to God's design. Now, I want to tell you right away that to prophesy is not the same as to preach. Uh, the same Paul who writes that a woman can pray or prophesy as long as her head is covered is the same Paul who says, I don't permit a woman to teach or, or to have authority over a man pastorally in God's house. And so to prophesy is a gift. It's a gift of spontaneity. Uh, you didn't have to prepare for prophecy. It came to you suddenly. But you could choose whether or not you were going to say it because they tell you later in chapter 14 that you'd need to do it one at a time and not all the time. And It's not involuntary, but it is something that comes to you spontaneously. We see in Scripture that the gift of prophecy sometimes involved foretelling the future, and that's quite exciting and neat, but it most often involved foretelling existing truth that was needed in that moment. Uh, Prophecy could be predictive, as we see in the case of Agabus's prophecy to the Apostle Paul in Acts 21. When Agabus made a prophecy that, that, if, that Paul was going to be bound by the Jews and delivered to the Gentiles if indeed he proceeded to Jerusalem. And he did, and that's exactly what happened. Predictive prophecy. But prophesying often was also just prescriptive. Uh, it was sharing a short, a short word of the Lord, encouraging or exhorting your fellow believer. It came to you spontaneously from the Spirit and you shared it and it was to nudge them forward in their walk with Christ. But prophesying is definitionally different than preaching. Preaching is rightly dividing the Word of God to the congregation that is assembled as God's people. Uh, preaching involves, the Bible says, the, the patient teaching through loving exhortation and at times even loving rebuking. And preaching is the central call of the office of pastor. It's not spontaneous. It's the fruit of careful study. The Bible says in the pastoral epistles that pastors are to what? They're to preach the Word. In season and out of season, reproving, rebuking, and exhorting with complete patience and careful instruction. Not spontaneous, but something that you put thought into. So owing to the headship principle that permeates numerous scriptures, Paul is not saying women are supposed to pastor the church. He's not even saying they're supposed to preach in the church. But he is saying they could edify the church at that time through praying and prophesying. Now, is the gift of prophecy still in operation today? That's a great question. That's a question for another sermon or you'll be here all day. 
But many saints would say it ceased, and they have a, a pretty good argument for that. Nonetheless, the gospel has given women in the first century freedoms they didn't have anywhere else in society, something their culture didn't offer them generally. However, in using these wonderful God-given freedoms, they had to do it in ways that were fitting and proper so that all things in God's house would still be done decently and in order. And so at the church in Corinth, many of the men were improper, and they were out of order. Why? Because they were following a pagan practice. They were turning up, and we have a slide for this, they were turning up the folds of their togas. And they would take the loose folds of their togas and they would lift them over their heads as a sign to everyone of their great piety to the local deity in which they were uh, meeting. And so this is a statue. And if you get a good look at this statue, uh, you'll notice this statue is, is male. There's no ana uh, anatomical femaleness in the statue. And these statues that were female would have the anatomical parts that you would recognize that way. You with me so far? All right. So the children-friendly version here. No arms, but also no, no other things. Okay? So this is a man. Uh, and, and the man has what? He has his toga uniquely lifted up. And, and all the scholars tell us this is a, a, a statue in the context of the archaeology. This is a statue of a man bringing a sacrifice to a pagan god. And notice where his toga was. He had his head what? Is covered. And, and that is how the pagans would demonstrate piety. They would say, look at me, I am worshiping. The Holy Spirit says, no, don't do that. For every man who prays or prophecies with his head covered does what? Well, he dishonors his head, who's God. Why? Because this act of public piety, it's going to draw all the attention to the worshiper, to the man who was supposedly so pious that he altered his appearance so that everybody around can see, I am praying or prophesying right now because I am supremely holy. However, a lady was supposed to have her head covered when she prayed or she prophesied. Now, the Greek word is gune, and uh, it's the word for woman or wife. The ESV translates it as wife. Most commentaries and commentators do not. The NIV and the New American Standard, which tends to be a little more literal, I think it's the translation correct when it just translates it as woman, not wife. That seems to be what the text is implying, men versus women. So why was Paul saying at Corinth in that time it was a disgrace for a woman to pray or prophesy with her head uncovered, whereas the man had to have his head covered. Well, again, you have to go back and live in their shoes. What did it say in that culture if your head was covered or uncovered? If you were a man and you covered your head, it said, I'm super holy. Drew the attention to you. But if you were a woman and you had your head uncovered, holiness wasn't what you were conveying. That wasn't how people read that culturally in their day. A respectable woman in the first century Greco-Roman world generally covered her head with a draping of their garment or with a small shawl in virtually all public settings. She wouldn't go out anywhere where anyone could see her without a head covering because it signaled in their culture, I'm attached to a man. Uh, if they were married, it means I'm married. If you're not married, it meant that, look, I have a father or a brother or a protector and I am not available was the morally respectable way to carry yourself. Sort of like really immodest clothing. 
you know what really immodest clothing looks like, right? You're not, not like, well, where's the line? Okay, there's a line. The line was way over there. You're dressed over here, okay? So really immodest clothing will do this today. It makes everyone go, she's saying something, right? That's what head coverings and ladies would do. It, it signaled a woman's willingness to entertain advances from strange men. And so to come to church in a suggestive manner, which is how that would be interpreted in their world, well, that's going to disgrace her head. It would disgrace her husband if she was married. It would disgrace her father or brothers if she was unmarried. Just like a destructive teenager. Have you ever seen a situation where there's a really destructive teenager? And, and it kind of brings disgrace on the family. So, you know, if, if your son murders seven people and that makes the news, you know, it's a little awkward at the office. Oh, how was your weekend, Bob? <laughs> well, there was the murder. You know, so... <laughs> Do you follow? You see what's happening? Okay. So, so for a lady to come to church, or to, and then she was publicly praying or prophesying, which she was allowed to do, without a head covering, that was sort of scandalous. That was something brazen. That was something wanton. That was the kind of dress that a prostitute would use to signal, I'm available for business. And Paul was saying, you know what, a Christian woman, she should use her gospel freedoms to pray and to prophesy, to edify God's church, but you need to do it in ways that don't draw inappropriate attention to yourself. In a way that doesn't cause public disrespect to, to, to your husband or, or your father or your brothers, just as the man was not supposed to pray in a way that drew attention to himself and away from God. It would seem, remember, what's one of the Corinthians' great problems? selfishness what's one of their favorite slogans happens all over the book everything is permissible i can do whatever i want because i'm a christian and it seems like this principle of everything is permissible for me is being made manifest in how some ladies wanted to cast off all the social mores of their culture and it would seem that some were saying that you know what equality in christ which they clearly had meant there was no longer any distinction in role before Christ. And that wasn't true. Which brings us to our third point. In regards to headship, so moving from hermeneutics to headship, in regards to headship, a husband and wife are equal in worth, and yet they're distinct in role. We're different. We're different anatomically, uh, and we're different in many ways. The Bible's very clear about this. When he introduces us to humanity, in Genesis 1.27, in regards to headship, a husband and wife are equal in worth, but distinct in role. Genesis 1.27, first time we kind of meet man and woman. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. So is a woman created in the image of God just as much as man? Yeah, in our passage, it doesn't mention image, it mentions glory. Because the, 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 the fact that men and women are both image bearers are equally reflected, male and female equally reflect the glory of God, or the, the image of God. Now notice our passage doesn't speak of image, though. It speaks of glory. Look again at verse 7. For, for man ought not cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Not image, because they're both image bearers, they're both equal in worth, but there's something about the role, and that something has some kind of implication. In that culture, for the man to pray or prophesy with his head covered, draw attention to the man. People notice the man was reverent. The man was pious. The man was holy. The man was devoted. The attention came to the... Not to the God who is being prayed to, or the instruction being given in the prophecy, but to the man. And God wants us to put our focus when we worship vertically on God, not horizontally on 
the man. Now, when a woman in that culture, when she prayed or she prophesied with her head uncovered, where would the culture's attention be drawn? To the seeming scandalousness in all of this. It would be drawn to the woman and not to the prayer or the prophecy. Sadly, friends, in our fallen world, in our fallen state, it would seem that the woman's uncovered head was probably turning some heads. Some of the men were probably wrong, and they were wrongly focused on the cultural signals she was sending of availability and desirability instead of on that woman's prayer and prophecy, which was the point. And some of the ladies were being wrongly focused on this display of culturally rebellious autonomy instead of the content of the prayer or the prophecy that was meant for their edification and instruction. But either way, in either case, men with hats on, ladies with hats off, so to speak, the focus came off of Jesus and it came on to us. And that's pretty much the exact opposite of biblical worship, isn't it? So in deciphering this challenge, notice that the Holy Spirit starts with the doctrine of creation and then goes to the doctrine of redemption. Uh, excuse me, goes for creation that doesn't highlight redemption. Because our equality of worth in Christ does not obliterate our distinctions of role in Christ. Jesus is going to say later uh, in Scripture, and the Bible tells us in verse 8, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That's how Paul puts it. We'll talk about Jesus in just a minute. So right away our culture hears the term, you know, made for or servant, and it gets, it gets a bone stuck, and we start to choke on the meat of the word. And we think, well, does that mean the woman is a doormat? Does being a servant mean a doormat? You know what the word helper means in the Old Testament? The word helper is used of the Holy Spirit of the living God. He's not a doormat. He's the living God. So it can't be that this is a term of inferiority, but it is a term speaking of role. And I want you to notice that Jesus Christ is every bit as much God as God the Father, is he not? And yet there's a distinction in role in the Trinity. The Father elects, the Son incarnates, the Spirit indwells. I want you to go back to verse 3, and you're going to see equality and worth, but you're going to see distinction and role. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. We go, okay, that makes sense. God's over us. The head of the wife is her husband. Oh, we don't, not sure we like that. And the head of Christ is God. But I thought the Father and the Son are equally God. They are. And yet, you see a willingness to have distinctness in roles that at times even involves subordination and function without diminishing equality of worth. If that's true for the perfect example of the Trinity, it's going to be true for the imperfect example if we're willing to put our pride to the side and accept the way God has set things in place. That takes us to verse 10. If verse 3 draws in the Trinity to demonstrate the distinction in roles never diminishes the equality of one's worth, what's the deal with verse 10 mentioning the angelity? We've gone from the trinity to angelity. Verse 10, this is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the... Now that just kind of came in from left field. Like, was anyone really... If you hadn't read... Well, what? <laughs> because of the angels. Why bring up the angels, Paul? Uh, well, the angels, they saw a third of their kind fall from the glory that God had given them in creation order into a pit he never... In wanted for them <laughs> because Lucifer and his cohorts would not accept God's created order. Lucifer wanted something different than what God decreed. 
Many scholars think that it's when Lucifer learned that angelic beings were going to be ministering spirits to human beings. That's what the scripture says, right? That angels are ministering spirits to help us. But we're made a little lower than the... So the angels go, wait a minute, I'm up here in created order. I don't want to serve down... And God said, well, it's not about where you are. I made you above, but I have a purpose for you below. And Jesus kind of lived that, right? He came not to be served, but to... And he was God. It's a very God way of looking at the world. It's not a very us way. So Lucifer decided to try his hand at overturning God's command. And in his Luciferic pride, he wanted to be in charge. And he most certainly did not want someone who was made a little lower than himself to be the one he had to serve. And I got to assume, I'm not a lady, but I think there's nothing new under the sun. If you're a godly lady, and you are righteously submitting to a very fallible and not always entirely wonderful husband, I bet you could feel a tinge of what ran through Lucifer's blood and made him boil at balking at God's design. I got to submit to this. You know who that is? It's a moron. Because we give you lots of evidence that we are not God. (laughs) Right? But you know what's really interesting? Verse 10. How we worship does not just affect us. Our choices affect others. If we are self-seeking and usurping, it will harm our neighbor, and according to the word of God, in some cases, it's going to impact the angels. Verse 10. And that is why the wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the the angels. It was very silent. Try that again. Because of the angels. Sometimes I wonder, is this working? Okay. Um, <laughs> God, in his infinite wisdom, he made men and women equal in worth, and yet he also made them distinct in certain roles. There's things that I cannot do biologically that are just factually true. There seems to be things that we are called to do in different levels theologically, and those are factually true, but we have to choose whether we're going to submit to them. Also, according to Jesus then, uh, our gender is not vague, our gender is not flexible, Our gender is not accidental. Our gender is not personally determined. It is the clear, intentional, God-ordained plan for the individual. Write down Matthew 19.4. These are the words of Jesus. I said we'd get there. Matthew 19.4. We live in a day where this has suddenly become confusing. But it's not because the scripture has been changing or logic has changed. In Matthew 19.4, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died to redeem us and knows everything fully, beautifully, and wonderfully goes back to the book of Genesis. And he said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, this was God's plan, he made them how? Male and female. Equal in worth, distinct in role. Brings us to our fourth point. All hate mail can go to Jason at Welcome to Calvary. He is not here this Sunday. Jason at Welcome to Calvary. Brings us to our fourth point. In regards to headship, a husband and wife must be mutually interdependent so that we complement each other, not compete with each other. In regards to this principle of headship that's hard in a fallen world, a husband and wife are to be mutually interdependent so that we complement each other, not so that we, we compete 
with each other. I want you to look at verse 11. It's not a verse of, of, of dependence. It's interdependence. It's not a word of domination. It's a word of cooperation. Nevertheless, in the Lord, the way God wants it to work, the woman is not independent of the man, nor the man of the woman. If the Bible was misogynistic, it would have stopped the first part. It's not. It's realistic. And it's realistic that an all-wise creator made us different, and most of us can see those differences, but then we want some areas not to be different. Nevertheless, in the Lord, as woman is not independent of the man, nor man of the woman, for as woman was made from man, yeah, that's how it started, so now man is born of the woman. So every man standing here is because a woman was standing there first. Do you know what that means? It means we're mutually interdependent. And all of this is from who? The ratty views of Paul the misogynist. Actually, no! <laughs> all this is from God. The Lord has made man and woman interdependent, not independent. Woman came from man, and now all men are born of women. But ultimately, both of us find our source in who? In the all-wise God who knows what he's doing. Which takes us back to the teaching of Jesus. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become locked in pitch battle for domination. Mainly over the remote control. That's where the sin part came in. And the two shall be one. Different. Distinct. Working together to complete and complement each other's deficits. So the timeless truth grounded in creation order is that men and women are equal in worth and yet we're also distinct in role. Therefore, we're, we're to complement our spouses, not compete with them. And the temporal cultural application in the Greco-Roman world meant that ladies should have long hair, and in their culture the men should have short. Further, it meant that ladies, when they prayed or prophesied, they should do it with their heads covered. And when the men did it, they should do it with their heads uncovered. And that brings us to point five. The, the, the modern application from their ancient cultural application and implication. Point five. In regards to, to hairdos and, and head coverings, believers are to dress and act in ways that honor their God-given gender and do not lead to disruption, distraction, or self-promotion in the congregation. Let's say that again. In regards to these things, hairdos and head coverings, believers are to dress and act in ways that honor God, God's God-given gender, and not lead to disruption, distraction, or self-promotion in the congregation. Listen again to our text and see how clearly this principle is laid out. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. That's the problem. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it's the same as if her head were shaven which would get everybody's attention in a negative way in their culture. For if a wife does not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short, which would be disgraceful But in their culture. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For man ought not cover his head, since he's the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman was made from man. Neither was, created, neither was man created for woman, 
but woman for man. And that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman, for as a woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. So judge for yourselves, Christians. You're going to have to put on your thinking caps. How do we apply this in our world? And he says, is it proper for a wife to pray with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? He's saying in their culture, in most places, now the Spartans didn't do this. The Spartans had longer hair, and you know, certain people in Bible times had longer hair. But in general, if you look at the statues of the Roman world, what do the Caesars always have? They have short hair. In fact, one of them has Mark Zuckerberg hair. You can look that up. You can Google that because Mark Zuckerberg has a weird fetish for one of the Caesars. You should look this up. And people think that his weird hairstyle is not because he has a floby, but because he's a billionaire. He probably doesn't have a floby. He probably has a stylist. And he makes it look like that because he's trying to look like one of the Caesars who all had what? Short hair. And all their statues had women with what? Long hair because it was culturally to their glory. In that day, in that situation, at that time. So when, he's, when he makes the appeal to nature, he's saying, generally speaking, look around in society. And in their world, doesn't it teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him. But if a woman has long hair, it's to her glory. For her hair is given to her as a covering. Here's a good verse. Stick it in this passage. John 13, 35. Does anybody know that one? By this, all people will know you're my disciples. By your hair length. Not what it says. By your head coverings. Not what it says. By your skirts, by your ties, right? By this, all people will know you're my disciples if you have love one for the other. What is love? 1 Corinthians 13, 5 says, Love is not self seeking. Now go back to our passage. What were the men saying? Look at me. What were the women saying? Look at me. What is love? Not self seeking. Which is why believers are to dress and act in ways that honor their God-given gender and do not lead to disruption, distraction, or self-promotion in the congregation. So, you know, somebody wears something funny to a costume party, that's not church. You, you follow? Somebody does some, a, a skit and, and dresses outside of their gender in humor once. They're terrible. Not necessarily. But, you know, when you come to church and you're worshiping God and this is how you're appearing, in our culture, does that mean that ladies have to wear a skirt? No. But it probably does mean that a man shouldn't wear a dress, doesn't it? Now, if we went to Scotland, and we were in the Highlands, and some people wore plaid dresses, those wouldn't be dresses in that culture, would it? They would be called what? Kilts, and it's something a man only would wear. Do you see how cultural applications change in cultures and times? Right? But, but the timeless eternal gospel principle of headship does not. Cultural applications move, timeless truths do not. In our culture, the length of our hair doesn't really say a whole lot. There are ladies with short hair, there are men with short hair. There are ladies with long hair, there are, ladies, there are men with long hair. But there are some hairstyles and there are some ways of dressing that will draw a lot of attention to us instead of Jesus at church, amen? I mean, if I came with a purple mohawk next Sunday, you would probably be slightly distracted. Not necessarily because a purple mohawk is right, wrong, or indifferent, but because everyone's thinking about me. And we're supposed to be thinking about he, right? That's why I never wear my crazy Christmas suit. 
to a Sunday service. So many of you have asked me, Sean, why don't you wear that to preach at Christmas? And my answer is always because Sunday is the, the Lord's Day. It's not Sean's Day. Now, I will wear that at the time party. I will wear that at my house. I will wear that to make my son uncomfortable and my wife. But I <laughs> do not wear the gingerbread suit to church. This church is not about me. It's not about you. And if we're ever confused on that, just remember who went to the cross to die for the church to redeem it. This isn't Calvary's church. This isn't the Norwegian's church. This isn't the Kumar's church. This isn't your church. This isn't my church. This is because he died for it. And we come here to worship Jesus. That brings us to our last point. Point six in all this. In regards to harmony. Oh, wait a minute. You snuck one in. It was hairdos, hairstyles, and Hermeneutics, yeah, we end on harmony. In regards to harmony, believers are encouraged towards reverent submission, not contention, demanding our self-expression. In regards to harmony, believers are encouraged towards reverent submission, not contention, not demanding your self-expression. Listen again to verse 16. If anyone is inclined to be what? Contentious. Has Paul ever been to a church? <laughs> if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practices, nor do the church of God. That is, most churches that want to put Jesus first don't fight over stupid stuff. Friends, as a Christian, you can be Christ-like by being humble, by being submissive, by being reverent, or you can be un-Christ-like by being contentious, by valuing your self-expression above your neighbor's edification, where they look and they see your dress more so than your prayer. That's what was happening at Corinth. We can be carnal Corinthians, or we can be biblical Christians, but we can't be both. The choice, well, it's ours. As for me and my house, we're going to try to choose the Lord. How about you and yours? Let's pray. Father, help us in our hermeneutics to rightly divide the word of truth, to prayerfully and carefully discern timeless, eternal gospel truths, and to separate them from temporal applications and implications. Let us not major in the minors and make molehills into mountains. But let us not move off the Mount of Sinai, the Mount where the Son of God was slain, the Mount where Jesus is high and lifted up, that you might draw all men unto Him. Help us to pay attention to what is repeated in Scripture and universal across the cultures versus what is one-off and incidental. Help us to see the difference between the descriptive and the prescriptive. What is accurately recorded because it truly happened and it's there to give us details versus what is accurately recorded that we might go and do likewise because there is a difference. It's accurately recorded that David committed adultery, but we shouldn't do that because numerous scriptures tell us not to engage in sexual immorality. The Bible records truth, but some truth is for us to stay away from that situation not to go and do likewise. That's going to take discernment. 
May we therefore use the analogy of faith and let the more clear passages of Scripture shed light on the less clear that we might not twist a text into an aberration of your revelation because we failed to do corroboration in that situation, leading to an interpretation that's just simply a deviation. Lord Jesus, you promised to give us your Holy Spirit to help us understand your Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, we believe, 1 Corinthians 2, that we looked at many weeks ago, that the unspiritual man does not receive the gifts of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. But the spiritual man judges all things. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Lord Jesus, help us to rightly divide that which you have revealed, that which you have recorded, that which you have entrusted once and for all for the saints. May we not abandon it. May we accept and embrace your created order, never devaluing one another as a brother or a sister, but also not usurping your intentions, whether that is about headship or leadership, whether or not the culture is able to celebrate these things or stand against them. May we be harmonious, Lord, and not acrimonious and contentious. May we make the focus of worship Jesus and not us. Amen.